The big 50,000 terabyte voice of the big business of talking. We'll go on. Talk. TalkZone.com. Now, InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. It's something we do every day, sometimes reluctantly. And yet, it's something that most of us know very little about. We're talking about sleep. And our guest is Harold R. Smith, M.D., clinical professor and director emeritus of the Center for Sleep Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Smith, welcome to InfoTrack. Thank you very much for inviting me. It seems like everyone struggles with sleep from time to time. Is there a sleep recipe for everyone? Unfortunately, there is no simple recipe for everyone. There is more of an operational answer to that question. Whatever makes you feel rested, refreshed, and alert the following day is the appropriate amount of sleep for you. That can vary from week to week and even from day to day, but as long as you're feeling refreshed and alert the following day, you're getting adequate sleep. Is that based on the different metabolism of each person and how their body works? Absolutely, and also, too, on the amount of prior sleep deprivation. There is a tremendous amount of sleep deprivation in this country right now. Why is that? Primarily because people don't realize how important sleep is to them, that we should be spending approximately one-third of our lives in sleep, and sleep oftentimes becomes the area in your life that you will sacrifice for your work, for your family, for your sports, for your activities, and it really shouldn't be sacrificed all that much. It seems like these days we view sleep as kind of a nuisance. Was sleep looked at the same way in the past? Unfortunately, sleep really did not get much attention from the scientific and medical community until the 1950s when research really began to focus on what happens in sleep, how it restores us, and how important it is to our lives. Sleep is a deep physiologic need. Being sleep-deprived is potentially dangerous to your health. In what way? Actually, in many ways, that not only will you perform less with sleep deprivation, but you are running the risk of increasing medical problems with sleep deprivation. Your immunity will be lower and you're more likely to get colds and flu and sick. As you get older, your risks of heart disease and stroke and high blood pressure also increase if you're chronically sleep deprived. I think a lot of people might have different definitions of it. So what exactly is sleep deprivation? Deprivation would be the opposite of the operational definition we discussed earlier, that if you're not feeling refreshed, alert, and awake naturally without caffeinated beverages, then you're not getting enough sleep. An easy way of looking at that is if you feel refreshed when you are getting up in the morning, then you've had adequate sleep. Someone who is not alert all of the time, despite the number of hours of sleep they may be getting, may have a sleep disorder preventing them from getting deep restful sleep through the night. Well, how serious is sleep deprivation? A very serious problem. There's been a whole series of excellent animal studies completed which shows all sorts of metabolic and physiologic problems that develop in the animals if they are sleep deprived. Indirectly, we've learned the same thing with human beings who are sleep deprived in terms of monitoring their illness and monitoring their physiologic status being so, as it were, out of kilter when they are sleep deprived. We're talking on InfoTrack with Harold R. Smith. He's a medical doctor and a sleep expert from the Center for Sleep Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Smith, what exactly happens when we fall asleep? 
Normally, all of us, when we transition from wakefulness to sleep, go into what is called the non-REM stages of sleep. These are subdivided into four stages, ranging from stage one, which is that drifty, drowsy feeling that you'll have as you're about to fall asleep, and then stage two, which many sleep researchers feel is the legitimate first stage of sleep. You then transition into stage three and stage four sleep, often combined and called N3 or deep sleep. And these are the deepest, restful, most restorative stages of sleep. Most people have heard the term REM sleep, but maybe you can explain just what that is. REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement or the stage of sleep in which the majority of your dreams occur. Stage REM rises out of stage three and four sleep in the first portion of the night. And stage REM sleep is the only stage of sleep that occurs cyclically throughout the night. Approximately every 90 minutes, you will have another REM sleep episode. Those REM sleep episodes become more and more intense and more pronounced in the latter third of the night of sleep. So during REM, your eyes literally move as you sleep? Your eyes are actually moving and there is a suspicion that you may actually be scanning the dream content of your sleep. That's what the rapid eye movements are. So if I don't dream, does that mean I'm not getting deep sleep? If you don't dream, that means you're not getting REM sleep. But the majority of people do not remember their dreams unless they waken near a REM episode. There's actually uh, fairly well accepted throughout the world that there are three stages of existence. Awake, REM sleep, and the non-REM stages of sleep. All other stages of sleep lumped together called non-REM. And the question arises, why is REM sleep considered a separate state of being? One of the reasons for that is even though we are clearly asleep in REM sleep, the brainwave patterns when measured during REM sleep look as if we are awake. One other very unusual thing that happens in REM is that virtually all of the skeletal muscles in your body are semi-paralyzed during REM sleep. Now the question arises, why are we paralyzed during REM sleep? Well, the suspicion is, is so that we don't actually act out our dreams that if you're chasing a ball down a hill, you don't find yourself careening out the bedroom door and down a flight of stairs. And one of the reasons we believe that is because there are some people who don't have that skeletal muscle atonia, that skeletal muscle paralysis, and they do literally act out their dreams, sometimes with violent injuries. Let's talk about naps. Are they good for you, or does that depend on the individual? That does indeed depend on the individual. For anyone who is not getting adequate sleep, a nap is a wonderful thing to do as long as you keep it short. A nap that's kept 20 to 30 minutes or shorter will be very refreshing. A nap that is allowed to go on for two hours or more can sometimes make you wake up feeling even worse than before you felt before the nap. When you take longer naps, you get into the REM stage of sleep. And when you get into the REM stage of sleep off of its normal biological cycle, it can actually have the reverse effect. It can actually make you feel more tired. Now, what about kids? Are shorter naps a better idea for them than, say, a two- or three-hour nap? Longer naps are poor for adults, but they're excellent for youngsters. Youngsters have a much longer physiologic need for sleep than adults do, and taking long naps in a youngster is a very good idea. Dr. Smith, at what age does that begin to change? That begins to change in late teenage years. 
that there is a gradually decreasing amount of total sleep time need per day that's at its peak in infancy and starts dropping off the later teen years into young adult years. In general, it seems infants sleep a lot, teenagers tend to want to sleep a lot, but parents often push teens to get out of bed and do something. Talk about that for a moment. Is it just societal views or is there a reason behind that? It is mostly societal views that make you wonder why is your teenager oversleeping for school every day. Well, actually, their biological clock is telling them to sleep more, and the schedules for school and work and performance are preventing them from getting that adequate amount of sleep. Ten hours is an adequate single amount of sleep time. If they're scattering some naps through the day in addition, that's fine. But going beyond 10 hours in a teenager, again, they're going to probably wake up more groggy than alert when they get into 11 or 12 or more hours of sleep. Dr. Smith, what do we know about the way sleep affects memory and learning? There is suspicion that parts of our sleep are restorative to memory, and there's actually a very interesting theory that the REM sleep stage, you are actually eliminating memories from the memory centers of the brain to open new spaces for new memories and for new learning. So sleep is very restorative to memory and learning as well. So I guess the bottom line is feeling sharp, just feeling refreshed. Correct. And there's an interesting concept called sleep debt that when you're not getting adequate sleep, you start accumulating sleep debt. And if you're given the opportunity, for example, a teenager on a weekend, they will make up that debt by sleeping a lot longer to get rid of the sleep deprivation that they've been having all week long getting up early for school. Very useful information from Dr. Harold Smith clinical professor and director emeritus of the Center for Sleep Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks so much for being with us on InfoTrack. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. A production of Syndication Networks.